as the deer pants for streams of water. So my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food, day and night, while people say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the Mighty One, with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Saviour and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore I will remember from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, deep, calls to deep in the roar of the waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. Hi everyone, come with me today and let me introduce you to someone who talks to himself. I don't mean in a tinfoil hat kind of way, nor do I mean someone who listens to himself talk. There's a difference, right? I mean someone who talks to himself. We find this person in Psalm 42. Psalm 42. We just had it read to us. And it's here that we're given a window into the inner chat room, the inner voice of one of the sons of Korah, that's the author of this particular psalm, as this person is plagued by darkness on their soul, a depression, a melancholy. They're distant from God, harassed by life, and their own emotions and feelings as well. You see, the world of Psalm 42 that we're going to enter into today, it's a real world. But it's also a world that is our Father's world. After all, Jesus taught us in Matthew 10:29 that nothing happens by blind chance. Not even a sparrow falling from its nest escapes the father's notice. That even includes suffering and distress. You know, many years ago, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a Christian doctor and pastor of Westminster in London, said that in Psalm 42, instead of allowing himself to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. We hear him ask this in verse 5, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? His soul had been depressing him, crushing him, in fact. 
So he stands up and he says, "Self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you." And what does he need to tell himself? This: "Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God." Let me just say today, as we wade into this topic, I'm not a doctor. And I'm very aware, though, of the large number of Australians, and maybe some of you watching right now, that are living with a mental health challenge of some sort. And as we wade into this topic of discouragement, feeling melancholy, of sadness, I'm approaching this in terms of how a Christian, a follower of Jesus, can face these moments in their life with the hope of God to show you, in fact, that faith is built for a time like this, and to help us care for others and ourselves as well. And moreover, this isn't the final and only thing God will have to say about a mental health challenge either. This is just one part of the puzzle. Any mental health challenge, of course, isn't a simple issue to resolve or work through. So I would encourage you as well to speak to a professional if you do need to. So let's walk together in Psalm 42 and meet someone who talks to himself as he faces a season of melancholy. And I hope today that you here, listening, watching, will find comfort from this too. As Dorothy Day once remarked, "My strength returns to me with a cup of coffee and the reading of the Psalms." And I do hope you've got your coffee ready with you as we go along today too. So we're going to look at Psalm 42 briefly in two waves. I call them waves, uh, verses one through to five, and then six all the way to eleven. Because of the repeated refrain that we see in verse five and eleven, which we just looked at, why are you so downcast in my soul? Why in turmoil within me? Put your hope in God. I'll yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. Then I have two observations about how we can talk to ourselves and about how we can talk to God today as well. So that's what we're going to track. You can follow along on your outline. Please do as well. So the first wave. Let's look at that. So look at verse one, and you'll see that the author begins by comparing his life to that of a deer, a really, really thirsty deer. Perhaps it's scorching summer, and he looks out amongst the trees, and he sees a deer panting for water. But he is not panting for water. He's not longing for water here. As a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. He recognizes that in this season of life, what his soul is longing for isn't food and drink. Not to self-medicate, but for God Himself. And as water eludes the deer when it's thirsty, so it feels like God is elusive to the author.、It、strikes me that the very first thing he says is he longs for God, for a fresh revelation of God. Notice as well how he refers to God as His. He says, "This is my God. You are my God." And at this moment, the sweetness of God is not there. But remember, though, God is personal. God is not distant. God is not unknown. It's a simple fact, a true fact that sometimes when life is chaotic and disjointed, it doesn't. We, we need reminding of that. And as verse two goes on to say, he's not just thirsting for a God; it's his God, but it's also the living God. Look what it says: "My soul thirsts for the living God. God is alive. Don't miss that. It's because God is alive, and because God lives, He can give living water." To our thirsty souls, you see, a dead god is no help. An idol made of wood and stone, circuit boards and silicon—it's no help. It can't respond. There are some who would deny the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, who is the Son of God, and would say simply that His teaching—that Jesus lives in our hearts, He's alive through what He said—but 
A dead God, you see, can't rule over our hearts and minds. A dead God can't hear our cry and our petition or be ever present in help of times of trouble. So I would say, no thank you to a dead, lifeless God. We have a living God. Is that the God you thirst for, I wonder? But you know, the distance is real, isn't it? Now, the group of uh, the authors who, who authored this particular psalm, they were the sons of Korah. They worked in the temple as gatekeepers, bakers, and songwriters. And for them, God was located in a very specific geographical location in Jerusalem in a temple. And when they say in verse 42, when can I meet God? Where can I meet God? It goes on to say a bit later. It refers to a physical location. But for us today, God is not confined to a place. But is not the experience of feeling distant from God still very real and palpable? You see, the author here knows in theory that God is with him. He's praying to God while he's away from him, you see, but he just feels a long way off. His enemies are near. He longs to go to Jerusalem to be with his God. But his distress, you see, in Psalm 42, isn't just being distant from God. There's also an internal distress in verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night. You know, sometimes life is just so sad. And so in contrast to the living waters of God that will satisfy him, he's drinking bitter tears, you see, being fed on his own tears of distress, in fact. And and then it goes on, he feels the pain and, and, and the mocking, actually, from others as they say to him, where is your God at the end of verse three? You know, misery has visible signs, does it not? People see you change character, they see your mood swings, maybe eating less or more, avoiding social situations, becoming more and more OCD, easily frightened. And for the author, the optics of a changed life, they're being noticed by others and now they harass him. By that I mean there's a group of people who are observing this person's life. They know he's a God follower, a God fearer. They can see his anguish and tears and distress. And they conclude on the basis of what he's going through, the fact he's professed faith in God, that God has now abandoned and forgotten him. Where's your God, they say. So they mock him for holding to a faith because they don't have room for the Christian God to allow for discouragement or sadness, you see. To them, maybe to some of you today here, if God were real, you know, you wouldn't be in the mess you're in, right? You look at the world, we wouldn't be in the place we are. But you know, one author has said of Psalm 42 that it might be judged by the world to be an act of unfaith and failure to be in this place, but for the trusting community, as a trusting Christian, these psalms, to pray this way is an act of bold faith. You see, to cry to God in distress, to face hard things, that's actually faith. He reflects on this, turning to his God when life is hard, and he starts to recall a happier time as he continues to speak to himself. Look at verse 4. He says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God, under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. He was once protected. Now he feels fragile. He was once making joyful noises to God. Now all he can muster up is a sound of tears day and night. He once praised God, lived among others who praised God too, but now he's alone. He's living the other spectrum at the end of life. In the Christian faith, the God of the Bible has room for this sort of life. Notice that he's talking to himself again. And what's he saying? He says, soul, remember, remember. You know, memory is a crucial part of faith in these times. He's not in a good place. 
But you know, in times of trouble, it's important that the author remembers that things weren't like this. He remembers that his own life was once not like it is now. Maybe for some of you, you reflect and recall a time when your life wasn't so turbulent. Remembering, you know, is an important act of faith. But it's not the only thing he recalls. As he continues this dialogue with his soul and God, he now hits the the play button. He hits the theme song of his sadness, if you will, in verse 5. Put, he says, put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. He commands himself, put, and he reminds himself of what is true and what is sure and what is certain, even if in himself he's not certain or sure, you see. What does he know is true? Well, certainly not that he's a good person or that he's got this. He's not reminding himself how amazing he is. No, he's telling himself how amazing his God is, how God is his saviour. And he directs his mind and his heart and his soul to the future. He says, I will praise you, you see. I will. I'm not doing it now. I can't. All I can do is tell my soul to hope. And sometimes that's the best thing you can do. And with that, the first wave ends as the sea of sadness rolls back into the ocean of despair and another wave now crashes down on top of him. Just like verse 4, the second wave begins all about remembering, in fact. So here's wave 2. Verse 6, similar to verse 4, he says, I will remember you from the land of Jordan to the heights of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Now, it's significant here that the author mentions these two geographical places because for him, for God's people in the covenant at this time, these landmarks are like great signposts for his memory of God's faithfulness in dealing with his covenant people, you see. I will remember, he says. What does he remember? His own past as a covenant person of God. God's own faithfulness to his people, you see. He's chattering away at himself, remembering over here, this is when God has done that. Over there is where God dwells. Remember, reminding his soul that his God has a track record of faithfulness. And you know, we can do the same thing today. When we're stuck talking to yourself about God's past faithfulness is a recipe for future present trust. We can remember how God has never actually ever failed us, has he? We can think back to another mountain, to another great signpost of God in history, to Calvary, that shows how faithful God has been to us in Jesus. When Jesus went to the cross, we reflect back on his faithfulness to us and to his own covenant to send Jesus to die and rise again in our place. And you're remembering is the first step to change. And this is why God's words are important, you see. God's words are not magic. I read this week that someone said God's words are revelations from God uh, for our redemption. And when we remember God's words, we begin to change by God's grace, by God's spirit at work through his written word. There's no hint of a name it or claim it type of theology here. It's a person who is just rather saturated in God's word, remembering and recalling who their God is. God, life is disjointed. You're like this. I'm just going to remind myself of that and sit there in your word, thinking who you are, meditating, musing on you, the source of life and truth. He's telling his heart what his mind knows to be true, you see. And that's the biblical way of talking to ourselves. We preach the gospel to ourselves that way. He's thinking over the whole scope of God's salvation history and saying, so This is the God I trust. If nothing else is certain in life, God is. He then continues 
by thinking about another part of God's creation, verse 7, the ocean. It says this, Deep course to deep in the roar of your waterfalls and all your waves and your breakers have swept over me. As much as the waves and the waterfalls crash over him, notice they're not outside of God's control. Look what it says. In the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. He calls them God's waves and God's waterfalls. What's important in this is that in the distress, the psalmist never loses his grip on the great truths about God. You see, it's not of any help to say to someone, God doesn't rule the wind and the waves when you're under them. As hard as it may be to see God's hand over them and in them, to say that God is not ruling is even more frightening and and untrue, in fact. It would mean they're outside of God's control, that God is unable to use them to stop them, to rescue them, to have a purpose behind them. That there is something else, in fact, competing with God, chance or the universe or fate, that God is subjective to, subjected to another thing's control in life. And that is not the biblical God. And if that's the case, that God is subjected to something else or some other force, then you really would be left on your own and you really would have no hope. And so you see a rich, deep theology of God is actually what sustains you in the waves. Not a shallow approach to God's sovereignty. It doesn't mean you don't cry out. It doesn't mean you don't feel them. The disciples in the boat, when the waves crashed over them, cried out to God, Jesus, wake up, save us, and God heard. But you see, the chaos and the waves belong to God as much as the sunshine. And that's what he talks to now in verse 8. By day the Lord directs his love, and at night his song is within me, a prayer to the God of my life. The waves and chaos belong to God, but so does the sweet embrace of the love and kindness of God too. God is directing love and kindness to him, even in the waves. This happens one day at a time, and even in the most fearful times of the day, at night time as well, God's love is there. Yet even though he knows this, he's still holding on for dear life, because he says in verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go around mourning oppressed by the enemy? Now, there's two things that stabilize him here. Firstly, God is his rock, and he's taking his why questions to God too. He's telling God, this is no fun. This hurts. I don't get it. I don't understand. I'll sit in you. I'll hold upon you because that's the only hope I've got, Lord. But I feel like you've forgotten me. Just, I just want you to know that, God. You know, the, the hard part is always believing God is gracious when feel, life feels like it is graceless. We often reason that if God is almighty and powerful, then he should fix it. And if he doesn't, it means he isn't powerful or doesn't care. But that's not the experience of the Psalms. What if God is infinite wisdom, has a purpose and plan and a reason behind it? And just because you and me can't understand the why does not mean there is none behind it. In John 9, I'm just thinking now, the disciples saw the blind man and said, is it because he sinned or his parents? And Jesus said, no, you're wrong. Change the optics. It's so the glory of God can be on display. Suffering, tragedy, hardships, they're flipped around in the Christian story, all because of Jesus. And this is why in the midst of tragedy, we rely not on our own speculations, but rather on God's sure, true word, just as the author is doing. Faith says it's hard and holds on to God. It's what faith is designed to do. It's built for these times like that. And then it ends in verse 11, just as it did in verse 5. Why are you downcast? Why disturbed soul? Put your hope in God. I will praise him. And so we leave the psalmist here clinging to God, his rock, doing two things, talking to himself about the truth of God, being honest before God as well. So in light of Psalm 42, I just have two responses uh, for us to think through today. And I hope you can see 
that there really is no better place you could possibly be or a better way forward in the darkness either than clinging to God, hoping in God. And this dual talking of to God and talking to yourself about God is actually a wonderful way forward. And here's what I want to finish today. We respond, well, Psalm 42 encourages us, I should say, to respond by faith and trust in God when we feel like this, by speaking to God and speaking to yourself about who God is. So let's look, the writer speaks to God. We've touched on this before, but let me just summarize it. Don't miss it. The psalmist is directing his lament, his cries to God, letting God know how distressed he is. He's speaking to God. He's speaking to the one who has grace and authority, as we saw over the wind and the waves, to do something about it. And you know, that's so cathartic and so comforting to direct a complaint, a frustration to someone who has the authority to do something about it, who has the compassion to hear and listen, who understands what we're going through, not as a distant deity, but a close and personal God. Is that not what we long for? I mean, you think about someone directing a complaint in a call center. You want to talk to the manager. I want to go as high as I can to let them know just how frustrated I am at this particular thing. We're not satisfied with someone who can't do anything about it. And you know, prayer and talking to God this way, prayer, it's not a weak answer either. Look at verse 7. We pray to the one who controls the wind and the waves. We're reminded that God is the living God back in verse 2. We pray like that. Because God is powerful and God cares. Even when life is disorientating, as verses, look at this, 2, 3, 5, 9, 11. They all make clear, all these why questions, what does the author do? He takes them to God as well. And this is why it's good news to know that God is sovereign over all our sorrows and the sunshine. I read this week, Trevor Wax, a Gospel Coalition author, he said, God will not allow us to be overcome by our weakness. He is our strength. Either he will lighten the trial or strengthen our faith faith. And so we talk to God like this, like the psalmist does from a posture of faith. We ask as someone saved by grace. We sit secured in Jesus, known by God, looking to him. And that makes all the difference in the world. So I wonder, are you talking to God from a posture of faith, asking why, saved, secure in Jesus, all by the grace of God? Secondly, he's talking to God and talking to himself. The psalmist talks to himself about God, who God is. He's talking biblically to his heart and mind, recalling God's historical moments, his own joy that he's tasted of God before. He affirms the wise, strong hand of God over his life, that God is his, that God is his salvation, that God is his hope, God is the source of his praise, and he's longing for a new, fuller expression of God when his soul will no longer be dry and longing for God like a deer panting for streams of water. He reminds himself of who God is, what God has done, and what God has pledged to do. And that's very different, by the way, to a moralistic, motivational, inner speech, pump you up type mindset. Instead of allowing himself to talk to him, he starts talking to himself, you see. It's about saying, God, you're this and I'm that. It's about verbalizing, in verse 8, that God loves him. That God loves you. Even when you're at your most unlovable and vulnerable, God's love is there. Not to abuse you, not to take advantage of you, but simply to make you lovable. You don't do anything for God to love you. He does love you. Just by nature of being made imagio Dei in his image, there is love for God to you. And you know, today, we have even more clarity 
than the psalmist does on who this rock is that he clings to in verse 9. We know that because the Messiah himself has already come and gone to the place of pain, of distress, of darkness, the place where Israel and indeed the whole world was in deep distress and he went to that, that this Messiah one has been willingly cut off, cast down, oppressed by the enemy on our behalf to uphold the glory of God. Our Messiah said the words of Psalm 42.6, My soul is downcast within me. And as he wept in Gethsemane in the garden the night before he was crucified, And then on the cross, he cried out, Psalm 42, verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? And of course, this great Messiah is none other than Jesus Christ. And so we can say to ourselves something like this, why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you so disturbed within me? Ah, I will lift my eyes to Jesus. I will hope in God, in the word made flesh, in the God who wept in Gethsemane and who became God forsaken on the hill of Calvary, in whom all the waves of God's anger and sin crashed over him in my place. So this is the God who comes in light and truth to lead me to his holy hill, to his dwelling. He prepares a table before God in the presence of my enemies. I will hope in this God and I will again praise him, my saviour and my God. And that is the voice of faith as we fight by God's grace. And that is Psalm 42. So let's just pray now as we close. Father God, we recognize that you are the one who has made us in your image, that many of us have seasons of darkness, despair, and sadness, like Claudia, like the psalmist, like the author of Psalm 42 has. And so God, I just pray now for those of us who are in this space, that we would cling once more to God our rock, that we would pray the words of Psalm 42. We would cling to you, hope to you, hold upon you, remind ourselves who you are. We would talk the gospel to ourselves, that we would remind ourselves of who you are, that you are our saviour, you are our God, ever living, alive and present. And Father God, for those of us who know someone in this space, that we would be kind and gentle, compassionate to them, that we would speak the words of God gently and encouraging to them, not out of fear, not out of a position of authority or power, not to lord over them, but simply to walk alongside them as a fellow fellow redeemed soul who loves Jesus too and wants to encourage someone else on the pathway to glory. Thank you, Jesus. You hear us. You respond to us that you went to the cross, God forsaken, so we can be redeemed in your kingdom. Have your presence, the Holy Spirit with us now. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.